A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep. I'm Dr. Yishan, a board-certified sleep specialist. I started this podcast in about 2018, and there are 122 episodes published so far. So over the next four weeks, I want to combine the wisdom from the previous episodes and focus on four very important sleep topics. And today going to be the first topic. So one of the most common questions I got asked when giving sleep health lectures is the phenomenon called sleep paralysis. In Chinese culture, there's a much more terrifying name for this term called something like ghost on your chest or on your bed. So to explain that in a very simple way, basically sleep paralysis is a phenomenon that you are conscious, but you cannot move your body. So it's actually very common when we are dreaming, but sometimes it could indicate some kind of sleep disorders if it happens very often outside of REM sleep. Some people may even experience some kind of hallucinations at the same time, and that could be very terrifying. So I have interviewed two wonderful guests who have experienced this phenomenon themselves for years. So let's review some of the great points one guest, Lee Adams, shared with us in episode 55. First of all, a lot of people associate sleep paralysis to a couple of things. So like um, waking up and feeling that you can't move is really kind of the definition of sleep paralysis. So some people will wake up and they feel like, something's heavy on their body or they can't speak or yell out. And then they have fear usually associated with that. So that's one aspect of sleep paralysis. And typically like a person that is having and experiencing sleep paralysis, they're also experiencing what is called hypnogagia. And that means that they also have visual hallucinations or auditory hallucinations that are associated with the experience. So they may see something um, in the room or they can actually feel sensations on their skin or hear uh, strange and bizarre noises. And all those can be associated with hypnogagia. So people kind of group it together into one thing, but really they're kind of two different things. But oftentimes when people talk about sleep paralysis, they're kind of mentioning both things. Wow, that's very unique and interesting. Actually, personally, I think I experienced that possibly once or twice when I was younger. Uh, they were bizarre enough for me to still remember that. Hmm. But if they have a professional name, I know, are they like a more severe or frequent symptom for, for some population? In America, I know the statistics American is that it's considered around about 20% or so actually experience sleep paralysis at one time in their life. They may not fully realize what's happening to them and then they forget about it or they never talk about it. And, you know, people just kind of forget things. So they may have had the experience and just it washed away. Right. But um, 
it's kind of typical for Americans is about 20% or so, but in other cultures and stuff, they actually have more uh, higher cases of it. So like in Japan, they released peer reviewed uh, articles talking about somewhere up in, I think it was like 40 to 50% of Japanese wow. actually experience it one time in their life or another. And in some cultures, um, they actually have kind of a mythology associated to sleep paralysis where the old hag syndrome comes up. So if you read on Google or some other sites, you can read about old hag syndrome. And that actually comes from, um, I think, Newfoundland. It's been a while since I've really like gotten deep into this stuff. But um, so there's a, an author, uh, he wrote the terrors that go in the night or come in the night. And he actually was a researcher doing research on mythology. And he went to, again, I think it's Newfoundland. And he was researching that, like that case, like the, um, the myth behind that. And he found out that people believed that they could curse other people with hagging, they called it, um, because of an older lady that would show up and attack their victims. And essentially he found out it was, they were describing sleep paralysis. So they would curse someone and then they would actually have like some type of uh, sleep paralysis experience and then, you know, so on. So it's broad and there's lots of different culture uh, associated with it. And I know, you know, it's common in uh, Philippines, stuff like that. I've had a lot of people come to me and talk to me from the Philippines and Asian countries, especially talking about sleep paralysis and experiences around it. So Right. And it's also interesting, you mentioned this data, which surprisingly high, I think, for, for some Asian countries, is like once in life, right? I also know sleep paralysis and hypnagogic uh, hallucination could be a common symptom for people are diagnosed with narcolepsy, this right. kind of sleep disorders. So for, for those population, I guess it's frequency is much higher, cause yeah. more disturbance in their life, right? There's not a lot of research that actually talks about why some cultures would have it more than others. You know, there's some theories out there why stress-related uh, situations, um, maybe the food, type of food being eaten, even geographical areas, places with high-density volcanic activity causing some type of like magnetic uh, field, you know, that influences people's sleep and their experiences of sleep. You know, all those things could be attributed to it in some form, but there's really no like definite answer to what really causes it. But definitely the aspect of having sleep disorders, sleep paralysis can be used in many cases as a sleep disorder. And you mentioned narcolepsy, cataplexy is essentially waking sleep paralysis where a person just falls down, they lose all muscle control and they're actually in sleep paralysis, but they're awake and aware, which is the same thing. And they can also experience waking hallucinations, why they're in cataplexy, why they're having that. So a lot of people that actually have sleep paralysis should talk to a sleep specialist and figure out what's going on with their sleep because it's really related to the sleep cycles being interrupted and that's a tie to it but it's it's very complex you know like if you get it diagnosed that you have a sleep disorder then that's one thing but also the cases of how sleep paralysis kind of come about to some people seems kind of random almost and not really clearly related to 
the person's or a group of people's ability to have good sleep. And there's a couple examples that I can share with you if you'd like about um, those cases. Definitely. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine was talking about a case where he had a sheriff of a someplace in America. I'm not exactly sure where, but he got an email from the sheriff and the sheriff was talking about a case where in his community every year at a certain time, people think that somebody had broken into their house and they also experience sleep paralysis. So they'll wake up and they'll, they'll freak out and they'll call the, the cops to come because they think somebody actually physically broke into their house. And so they, they go investigate it and nobody's there. Well, a lot of people start doing that. So they take notice every year that that time of the year is coming again and they make sure that all the cops are briefed so that when people start calling in, you know, they know that they should go investigate, but they also should be aware that sometimes this community has that problem. Another case was actually, I was, I was in the Navy before and I was on a ship and I was listening to a couple of the people I worked with and they were talking about essentially having shared sleep paralysis in uh, one of their birthing, which is a place where they sleep. So one person was experiencing sleep paralysis. They were trying to yell and it actually caused another person somehow to also have sleep paralysis at the exact same time. Almost like they fed off of each other in a way, you know, like the experience and the brain somehow activated and caused sleep paralysis together. And, you know, that, that's the only time I've ever actually heard of like a contagious experience of sleep paralysis between two people, but it is very interesting, you know. It is. Wow. That's, that's really cool. Um, hmm. I never know this kind of a uh, brainwave or somehow like uh, never heard about sleep related uh, symptoms could be contagious or impact right. each other like that. And also for that tongue you mentioned, I'm wondering, did they find out like what around that certain time this call increase, like what's behind it? No, they, I mean, uh, unfortunately, my friend wasn't able to further investigate for the, the sheriff. He was just too busy with this other work. So he really never got around to it. But it always made me, you know, wonder why every year at the same time, you know, that this does this happen. And it's not just one person, you know, it's a whole community of people. It would be great to get more data, you know, and to talk to those people, investigate and figure out what's actually happening to them. But it's a... Uh, Interesting. And, and also in that book that I mentioned, um, The Terrors That Come in the Night, the researcher also talked about people in the same location, they were sleeping in the same house, they had sleep paralysis. And he was in a, and also hypnogagia together. And they eventually moved out of the house because it was like disrupting their life so much and terrorizing them, you know, so they just, they finally left and then it went away. But he investigated and he tried to do it in the most scientific way he possibly could because he was trying to do his research on it. And he really didn't have a conclusion. And I read his book in the hopes that I would get some type of conclusion and be like, okay, it's, you know, I can explain this away kind of as just, you know, erroneous information in the mind and kind of just give up on it, you know, but he, he never really gave a, a good answer to it. And he's still today, like I, I've read, watched more videos of him and he still doesn't have a good conclusion. So it's kind of a little upsetting. And, you know, that way you're like, oh, well, hmm, okay. 
Right, right. So many things we don't know. That's that's the beauty of life, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm curious, what got you into this field to learn more, study more, get to know more about uh, sleep paralysis? So, I mean, I, I've experienced sleep paralysis quite a few times. Probably right now, I experience it maybe once a, once a month, about wow. that amount. When I was a child, I, I never had ex- sleep paralysis. I never had that experience. I didn't know what it was, but I did have lucid dreams. So I'd wake up in a dream and realize that I was dreaming and then be able to control my dream or do some action in it or observe my dream in a different way than a normal dream. So I was aware in a dream. That's typically what you call lucid dreaming. And then I was, you know, years later, I was about 26 and I was in the, the Navy and I was asleep in my room and I slept during the daytime because I work night shift. So my, my sleep schedule was already messed up. So my sleep hygiene was really, you know, a disaster at that point. Um, especially I had roommates and they would always wake me up and bother me and stuff. So it wasn't uncommon for them just to decide to wake me up anytime and me not really get a good period of time asleep. So, um, so one day I was laying there and my friend, I thought, had jumped on my back while I was asleep in my bed. So I was laying down on my chest and he pushed me into the bed. And I was like, whoa, you know, like I, I woke up. It startled me. And I tried to get up out of my bed, you know, to push him off of me. And I couldn't. He was like very strong. And I remember saying like, dude, get off of me. You know, like I was upset. And I said other strong words, but, you know, <laughs> and it pushed harder down into me. And I was like, whoa, you know, I was like, dude, get off of me. And I was really upset. And I was like, I'm going to hit you if you don't get off of me. And then I remember it felt like the head of my friend got next to my ear, my right ear and started breathing into my ear. And that just really pissed me off, you know, like to have somebody just dominating you and then started breathing right into your ear. It's like, Oh, it's the most irritating thing ever. So I was like, okay, that's it. And I went to swing to hit him. And when I did that, there was nobody in my room. And I was like, whoa, like what's going on? You know, like maybe my friend ran to, um, you know, my bathroom or something, you know, like, so I got up out of my bed and walked around and looked around and couldn't find him. You know, there was no one home. Actually, my whole entire house was completely cleared out of everyone. So I was like, okay. So I got a little, you know, anxious from that. It was pretty scary to have that kind of thing. You start, your mind starts wandering. You're like, whoa, what was that? What's this experience? It felt very real. Mm-hmm. So a couple of weeks went by and, and I'm laying in bed and I hear people downstairs talking and they're having a conversation. I can hear them talking. So I, I assume that I was just kind of awake, you know, and I noticed one of the people that were, was talking wasn't actually there anymore. They were in a different country because they were in the military too. So they were deployed. As I thought of that, I remember the image in my mind of a blue orb floating up my stairs into my room. And I couldn't move either, but I kind of just blacked out. Like the dream kind of ended there and I don't, I have no memory recall what happened after that. So then that freaked me out again. And I started sleeping on the couch in a different room downstairs. And, and I was really worried, you know, I wasn't getting good enough sleep anymore. 
these experiences kind of startled me. Then I finally went back to my room because I didn't have any more experiences of it. And this time uh, I'm laying in my bed and I'm laying on my back this time. And I look over and I see my door open, slightly open. And I was like, what is that? And I can't move again. Then a shadow like figure kind of looked like the Green Reaper came through my door and physically came over to me and grabbed me and then pushed me against the wall and started beating me up. And yeah, a physical attack. And I was like, you know, I, I, I thought it was real. It feels absolutely hundred percent real. And then I woke up and I was in my bed and I was like, okay, like this is bizarre. You know, like what is happening to me? So I went online and I read about um, some weird websites on lucid dreaming and they talked about what they described as a thing called the dweller in the threshold or the guardian and threshold. Essentially, they told me that I just needed to kind of stand up to this thing, whatever it is, whatever the fear image is, I just need to stand up to it. And I was like, okay, you know, like I'm willing to try anything at this point. A couple of days go by, I'm laying in my bed just like normal. And sure enough, that same figure comes into my room and I stood up and I physically went after it, you know, instead of allowing it to attack me. And oddly enough, I ate it. Like, I don't know why, but I grabbed it and ate it and then it was gone. And ever since then, I've never had that same experience happen to me. I've had sleep paralysis since then, but in that house, it it went away for one thing. And then I move a lot in the military. So when I was in the military, I move and oftentimes I would experience sleep paralysis and see different things depending on the location that I went to. So that was really bizarre to me. And I wanted to, you know, research this and understand it better. So I went to my undergrad I, I did in psychology because I really wanted to understand how the mind works and all these different aspects of what makes a human a human, which is really complex and especially focus on sleep. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of people that actually pay attention to sleep. So I kind of had to find my own resource sources and stuff things like that and met some good friends that know about sleep and know about sleep paralysis specifically and kind of talk to them about it and stuff and really kind of just explore that topic myself and able to kind of learn about how to deal with sleep paralysis versus just kind of react to it, you know, being instead of being reactatory, be like engaged with it and understand the process a little bit better and became very healing after a while, actually. So Wow, at least the, the story you shared, that, that's amazing. I feel like goosebumps <laughs> <laughs> yeah. about it. But I really like how you stood up to it. That reminds me of this famous technique, evidence-based treatment called imagery, imagery rehearsal therapy for mm. treating nightmares. And even for people with PTSD, with trauma history, they can still use this method just to targeting any type of bad dreams or nightmares to change the bad negative image to empower themselves, kind of like similar to what you mentioned, stand up for for yourself, change the story, and then experience different things in the dream. Yeah, definitely. Um, Dreams have been incredibly healing for me and transformative because, and especially my knowledge of lucid experiences, lucid dream experiences, and being able to kind of identify, you know, the, the dream itself and kind of work with it versus like, it being kind of put on to me 
in me just being the person in the dream experiencing things and having no understanding of it, you know, they kind of translate very well into waking life, you know, like there's a lot of things in waking life that are out of our control. But if you start understanding these systems and you start understanding your emotional response to it, then you can prepare yourself versus being just reactive. So like in a dream experience, it's a very good practice way. So, you know, you have this intense, terrifying experience, which sleep paralysis, you know, um, neurologically is some of the most terrifying experiences you can have as a human because your amygdala during the time of paralysis is hyperactivated and to the point, you know, it's like taking a needle and sticking it straight into your amygdala, which is the center of fear and you're super activated. So you're absolutely terrified and that's normal. It's almost an uncontrollable experience. You know, if you're able to kind of use that and kind of work with it, then you don't react to fear the same way as you did before, not only in the dream, but also in waking life. So they kind of play off of each other. And I think that's the idea is using the dream experiences and the images and dreams to kind of work with, you know, nightmares and stuff like that to overcome those fears and waking reality too, because it's a safe place really to kind of work through these processes. You know, it's a lot like imagining something and working through it in your mind in like a meditative state or something like that too. Wow, that's amazing. Do you mean you work on that? You, you use it as a healing process when you are awake? Then when you, when you have this lucid dreaming, it, it feels more healing or you have a way to work uh, with it in the dream? Both, I'd say. To me, dreams are kind of one of the same as waking reality. So they're, they're very tied together. It's your imagination. So your imagination is active when you're awake too, just as active. And so if you learn to work with that and how your imagination works, you know, off of emotions, things like that, then you can modify it in such a way that you don't imagine the most terrifying experiences. Instead, you think you imagine the most positive experiences, you know, instead of you have the option. So you can either imagine terror or you can imagine positivity and love, maybe you can choose. And so working with the dream experiences through those fear experiences, you can actually kind of start building up like a callus in a way, you know, towards fear and emotion, those emotions. And you can start seeing them kind of for what they are, which is, you know, imagination. It's part of your imagination. It's not to say that um, it's easy. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it's incredibly hard for people to do that. It was incredibly hard for me to stand up to that thing and actually kind of attack it versus like it attacked me. And I wouldn't say that that is like the most healing way of dealing with sleep paralysis either. There's other ways and other dream experiences I've had with sleep paralysis and hypnagogia that has allowed me to um, work with it in a different way, which is more of a, an accepting experience versus like an um, aggressive, either it being aggressive towards me or me being aggressive towards it. It's more of like allowing it to flow through you in a way, allowing it to happen and not really reacting to it. It's a challenging thing because, you know, sometimes in sleep paralysis, you can have very abusive experiences. People have experienced sometimes rape even in their their sleep paralysis. That's pretty common actually to have that kind of experience. 
that's very traumatic to a lot of people, especially if they experienced it in real life, you know? So they may be reliving that stuff in their, their dream. And the most healing way is to, you know, for me anyways, is to not react to those things. So allow, it's odd, but allow the experience to happen and just, you're not reacting to it anymore. You're not, you're not feeling that emotion anymore and it, it goes away. So a lot of times, you know, more that people work with sleep paralysis, they'll feel the paralysis actually start happening to their body. You can physically start feeling and sensing that pressure build up on your body. And it feels like an electrical tingling and, and pressure and very uncomfortable feeling. But if you allow it to just kind of happen, you know, build up and you just, you don't push against it, try to not resist it. It'll eventually wash over you. Then you'll, you'll be in a dream. So it's uh, a lot of people experience lucid dreams because the next stage after sleep paralysis is being aware in a dream because you're already actually awake and you're dreaming, but you're, you're experiencing a natural phenomenon. That's just the paralysis. So if you allow it just to kind of happen, then, you know, it goes away. And that's kind of one of the best techniques really for people that have sleep paralysis commonly, you know, I tell people and there's books on it and there's articles and, and most of them that are very successful is talking about allowing the experience just to take place, not react to it and just let it go. And eventually, you know, it will take its action and then you'll, you'll be complete with it. It happens very quickly. So I think an important thing would be say that sleep paralysis without the experience, it's not normal to experience sleep paralysis. Like that's a clear sign that you, you may have some type of sleep disorder of some kind, but paralysis while sleeping is a totally normal thing. That's what happens to your brain is it puts you asleep. So you don't act out your dreams. And most people kind of forget that, you know, so you're experiencing a very normal um, natural phenomenon that happens every single time that you go to sleep, you start dreaming, but you're experiencing while you're aware, which is not normal. So if you allow the body to kind of do what it's supposed to do, then the paralysis will eventually take effect and you'll disassociate, you'll lose consciousness in a way of your physical body and then you'll be in a dream. I really like what you mentioned, the power of letting it be, letting it go, kind of like similar to what we see in psychotherapy for anxiety and other things is if we pay too much attention to it, if we feed it with a lot of fear, worries, it actually gets this nutrition, it grows. Yeah. But if we just learn how to coexist it and let it just be there. We don't pay attention to it that much. We think, well, it's normal. It's there. It's a little bit disturbing or it's possibly very uncomfortable, but let it just be there. I don't feed it when any nutrition. I experience my body. I do other things and it actually cannot grow and eventually it gets smaller. I mean, to describe it as best as I can, it's like a building of like a just a buildup of energy in your body that you feel, you feel this buildup that just takes place. And the more that you push against it, the more violent that buildup gets. So you have, it's like two rivers pushing against each other. And the more that they push against the more turbulence, you know, the more waves that you have. 
And so if you finally just release that your river, you know, your control mechanism, you release it, then the river can flow through you and you no longer have the turbulence that you're actually experiencing. The, the uncomfortable feeling that comes from sleep paralysis is actually pushing against it to create that turbulence. Otherwise, it's just, it's just flowing through you. So there's no problem, you know. Hmm. And that's what normally happens for people when they go to sleep is they, they have no awareness. So they have no, they don't have the two rivers pushing against each other. They just have the one that, and it's fine. There's no remembering of it or anything. So the sleep disorder is actually you trying your best to stay awake when you're trying also to go to sleep. So it's two forces pushing against each other and one's going to win, you know, and it's oddly enough, it's, going to be the the paralysis that is going to win most of the time so either you're going to wake up and not have a good time or you're going to let it go through you and things will be fine yeah it feels like anything about dream about sleep overall too much control actually can get in the way and make things worse the more we want to control something it's just less likely to go smoothly and easy yeah absolutely Next, let's review the conversation between me and another guest, Ryan Hurd, from episode 59. So there's some research being done right now in the UK by uh, University of London Goldsmiths that's actually investigating that specific question, what is the role of belief in Um, sleep paralysis. And they have done one study that has shown, at least through a survey, that people, for instance, who have more a belief in paranormal activity, they believe in ghosts or (laughs) the voice of evil, uh, you know, that kind of thing, are more likely to have a negative experience, basically, to be sort of harmed more by the encounter than those who don't hold those kind of beliefs. That's a key that we're beginning, I think, to unlock, you know, um, in terms of, of, of what is this relationship. But belief can have a positive role as well. And I think this is something that is not often discussed in the full spectrum of what can happen in a sleep paralysis and a visionary experience. Because, for instance, the ancient Greeks had a culture of dream incubation where they would call the god Asclepius to, for healing. And these involved sometimes the God coming to stand by the supplicant's bed and then put his hands on them to provide healing energies. And there's a very good chance that that these people were sometimes experiencing what we would call sleep paralysis with hypnagogic hallucinations. But because they had a culture primed for positivity, for healing, their expectation perhaps was different and it led to a different experiential outcome. Oh, that's quite interesting. So how our beliefs, what we think about, the power of thinking can really impact either how we heal or how we suffer more. That's not to say that uh, positive beliefs can just sort of wash it all the way when it's happening because this is still a very, I think it's neurologically set to be a negative experience and that's the default. 
and it is the primary way that people experience it, whether or not they have paranormal beliefs, or even if they have beliefs uh, or culture around, say, a nocturnal assault, like you say, in your culture, there's some tradition for it. You know, in some United States subcultures where there's no traditions, uh, people experience it as alien abduction. So it's interesting, you know, a belief isn't everything, but it does seem to color the possibilities or, you know, or sort of change where in the spectrum of possibility you are, right? So isolated sleep paralysis is when one has these experiences and it's not related to another primary sleep disorder, uh, such as sleep apnea or narcolepsy. Uh, People in those camps also suffer terribly from sleep paralysis as a sleep symptom. But isolated sleep paralysis occurs without a primary sleep disorder and basically is sort of seems to be, number one, there's some hereditary there. So you may just be prone to have it. Number two, anxiety. And when sleep is disrupted, those seem to be trigger points for those who are prone to have it. The third piece is, is that certain sleep positions can actually instigate it more likely than others. And for instance, sleeping on one's back is known to instigate sleep paralysis more than on the side or on the stomach. And then that's not an absolute. I've had it in all sleep positions. That's just the way it is for me. Um, But I do know that if I sleep on my back, I'm basically asking for it. Students, I mean, right, there's not too much one can do about needing to study all the time. If you're prone to it and you know this, you can say, oh, I'm not going to have caffeine after, say, 1 p.m. because, uh, you know, this is happening. That's, that's an easy mark to make. You know, keep the caffeine from there. Reduce alcohol or cannabis consumption uh, because, you know, these are, again, instigators that mess with, with sleep and its function and, and how st- strong and secure it is. And so um, easier said than done for some, but, but these are things that we know. Also, you know, exercising at odd times, exercising at night um, may have a role to play. And so it comes back down to relaxation strategies and mindfulness. And so trying to go to sleep, you know, after having a period of relaxation can be very helpful. Taking a bath, reading something comforting, using music, whatever kind of works for you to relax before sleep can possibly have a way of preventing these episodes from occurring. I see. So it sounds like there are a lot of um, lifestyle change we can make and there's a lot of things we can do to similar to how we can improve our sleep quality in general. When we pay more attention to that if we are prone to uh, having sleep process, adjust lifestyle, adjust sleep habit can really help us with less experience of sleep paralysis. That's one possibility. Um, But then once we are in it, in the episode of it, a lot of people find it's very scary that you cannot move, you cannot get out of it. Some people may stuck in that for long, is there a way for us to help ourselves to get out of that? Or should we just calm down, let it go, let it pass? Mm. Well, what you just mentioned is actually a, is a pretty good solution to it. But maybe this is a good time to just talk a little bit about the physiology piece, uh, because there are some tactics, and they're based on understanding the physiology. 
And so what sleep paralysis or technically awareness during sleep paralysis is, is the awareness of, of muscle atonia that happens during a transition out of REM sleep into wakefulness. And so essentially during REM sleep, and this happens every night for all of us, whether or not we remember our dreams, when we are in REM sleep, which is known as dreaming sleep, most of the skeletal muscles, including the diaphragm, are depressed in terms of activity. Uh, and so in, you know, this may have an evolutionary function, not really sure. Uh, but in any case, when we're in REM sleep, major muscle groups are inactive. They're, they're, so, so what happens with sleep paralysis is the body stays asleep, but the mind kind of wakes up. And interestingly, some people open their eyes during it. And so essentially, you're in a hybrid state of reality that is akin to dreaming with your eyes open while feeling the sensations of muscle paralysis. So one tries to move one's body and feels that dampening effect, I can't move, and it can, it can be interpreted as something's holding me down. And it can happen with the chest, it can happen with the throat. Also, because it's REM sleep, and REM sleep is an odd state of consciousness, the brain's very active. It's active, sort of, sometimes it's more active than it is in waking life. And there's also um, the engorgement of the genitals that happens, comes and goes with REM sleep. And so there can be um, feelings of genital engorgement um, and sexuality that co-mingle with some of these horrible feelings. And so narrative, personal narrative can play a role. And there's actually some evidence that people who um, have suffered childhood sexual abuse seem to have more sleep paralysis than those who haven't had that experience. And during those encounters, they essentially go into what we could call a PTSD or post-traumatic state where they re-experience past abuses. So it's very, it, it can be very intense, very, very scary um, to the point of death anxiety uh, for some people. And the other piece of that strong emotion I should mention is also related to REM sleep because in REM sleep, emotions kind of rule the roost the middle brain is very active. The amygdala, which processes a lot of emotions and in particular fight or flight responses, very active during REM sleep. And so when we're experiencing hallucinations and feelings of being held down, we're awake and aware, but more likely to access long-term memory because we're in REM sleep. So we're pulling up old childhood associations with what is evil and what is the folklore associated with evil. During this, the amygdala says, hey, let's make this even creepier. And it becomes, you know, just blown out fear. Uh, so that's a lot, right? That's, that's a lot. And I have to say that the hallucinations, uh, you know, I think only 20% of people experience full-blown hallucinations or full-blown sexual assault experiences. That's even more rare. And I would say very tabooed. It's difficult to talk about uh, because people feel like they might not be believed. So that's the big package. It has to do with REM, sort of a hybrid REM state, shifting into waking life. And how to deal with that is precisely, number one, understanding this is physiological. And so I, I recommend to people to, to have essentially a scientific mantra, to, so to speak, to say, I'm experiencing sleep paralysis. This is, this is a normal natural thing that happens. Uh, and so kind of you can rehearse such a statement and that can provide 
some comfort for some people. And then second, you mentioned how it could be to relax, to let it pass. And that actually is a very good tactic. Fighting back against those paralysis feelings only intensifies the physical aspect of it, which can then sort of cause that rolling ball of fear and then more visions and then a worsening experience. Any way that one can relax. And so there may be a way that, that's individual to each person to think about something or someone or perhaps an item of faith that can provide them with some safety or security to, that helps, allows them to relax. And it could be just mindfulness and the scientific knowledge that relaxing is helpful. So it, so it doesn't matter if you're atheistic or, or agnostic or you have a strong belief system um, in a religious tradition. I think attuning yourself to your, and having a, an awareness of your own tradition can be powerful. And then the, lastly, you know, a very practical concern is, is to break the paralysis itself. One of the most effective techniques is to try to wiggle your finger or your toes, because physiologically this can break up the REM paralysis and someone can come out of the state with that. Wow. Yeah, I really love this strategy. It sounds like there's some similarity with treating insomnia, this kind of awareness, awareness of the physiology, understand the science behind it, understand certain things are normal, can reduce our anxiety already. And then we can use other strategies to help it further. If you experience sleep paralysis before, what is one strategy that you find very helpful for yourself? Please leave a comment in Google Podcast. Let me know. So our topic for the next week going to be some wonderful tips how to dealing with insomnia. Stay tuned. So this is Dr. Ishan. I will see you next week. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently. And there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia.